Welcome to Commuter Highlights from First Church Belfast. Here we've distilled our normal Sunday service into a call to worship, a prayer, two readings, a sermon and an organ outro for you to listen to on your way to work, out on a walk or wherever. If you feel so inclined, you can support our work by going to firstchurchbelfast.org and clicking on the donate button. We really would appreciate it. Here is this week's Commuter Highlights from First Church, Belfast. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, welcome to church uh, this morning. Another beautiful day um, and uh, it is fantastic to be back and fantastic to see you. God is spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In the holy quiet of this hour, let us pray that the sense of the nearness of God may be quickened within us. May our hearts be filled with gratitude and praise, and may our spirits be gladdened and uplifted by the thought of our kinship with God. And let us awaken to the privilege of our high calling to become fellow workers with him. Let us pray. Almighty and all-merciful God, giver of life and maker of souls, Grant that we may be of one heart with all thy worshippers, who look to thee in spirit and in truth. We thank thee for the precious gift of life, for the riches of nature, the truths of righteousness, the hope of immortality, and the love that binds us to the living and the dead. Raise us above lowness of mind or sadness of spirit, and teach us to see our work and our rest, our sins and our endeavours, our joys and our sorrows in the light that comes from thee. Uplift our hearts, confirm our trust, sanctify our affections, and let the veils that hide thee from us be taken away. Lord our God, giver of the light which gladdens the face of the earth, grant that we may be children of the light and of the day, let the sun of thy righteousness shine in our hearts, enlightening our reason, making clear our conscience, kindling our love. We would give ourselves to thee this day, beseeching thee so to rule and govern us by thy good spirit, that all evil thoughts and desires may be driven from our hearts, and that we may walk with joy in the light of thy countenance and in the way of thy commands. And as our Lord has taught us, let's join together in the words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, this morning I'd like to read a poem by Philip Larkin, uh, which I, I like very much. It's called Church Going. Once I'm sure there's nothing going on, I step inside, letting the door thud shut. Another church, matting, seats and stone, and little books, sprawling of flowers, cut for Sunday, brownish now. 
some brass and stuff up at the holy end, the small, neat organ, and a tense, musty, unignorable silence. Brood God knows how long. Hatless, I take off my cycle clips in awkward reverence, move forward, run my hand around the font. From where I stand, the roof looks almost new, cleaned or restored. Someone would know. I don't. Mounting a lectern, I peruse a few hectoring large-scale verses and pronounce, Here endeth, much more loudly than I'd meant. The echoes snigger briefly. Back at the door, I sign the book, donate an Irish sixpence, reflect the place was not worth stopping for. Yet stop I did. In fact, I often do. And always end up much at a loss like this, wondering what to look for. Wondering too, when churches fall completely out of use, what shall we turn them into? If we shall keep a few cathedrals chronically on show, their parchment, plate, and picks in locked cases, and let the rest rent free to rain and sheep, shall we avoid them as unlucky places? Or, after dark, will dubious women come to make their children touch a particular stone? Pick simples for a cancer, or in some advised night, see walking a dead one. Power of some sort or other will go on, in games, in riddles, seemingly at random. But superstition, like belief, must die. And what remains when disbelief is gone? Grass, weedy pavement, brambles, buttress, sky. A shape less recognisable each week, a purpose more obscure. I wonder who will be the last, the very last, to seek this place for what it was. One of the crew that tap and jot and know what rude lofts were. Some ruin bibber, randy for antique or Christmas addict counting on a whiff of garn and bands and organ pipes and myrrh? Or will he be my representative, bored, uninformed, knowing the ghostly silt dispersed, yet tending to this cross of ground through suburb scrub because it held unsplit so long, and equably what since was found only in separation, marriage and birth and death, and thoughts of these for which it was built. This special shell, for though I've no idea what this accoutred frosty barn is worth, it pleases me to stand in silence here. A serious house on serious earth it is, in whose blent air all our compulsions meet, and recognised, and robed as destinies, and that much never can be obsolete. Since someone will forever be surpassing a hunger in himself to be more serious, 
and gravitating with it to this ground, which he once heard was proper to grow wise in. If only that so many dead lie around. Um, the reading from Ephesians um, is coming from this um, translation of the Bible. It's a golden treasury of the Bible, and um, it actually belonged to uh, Tom Bannum. Uh, he was presented with this um, when he was a student for ministry, and uh, when I began my journey, he, uh, he passed it on uh, to me. Um, and it's a wonderful uh, resource. It was put together by the General Assembly, um, and it takes um, selections of the Bible. It's really a compilation um, of uh, the most uh, noteworthy um, and perhaps most obviously helpful uh, passages. And um, he left this wonderful little note, which I often read and, uh, and, uh, and smile. Uh, Paul J, the contents list are most useful and readings generally not too long. In my student time, uh, there were evening services on most Sundays um, and there were two services and often three. Um, and before I got um, a car, I reached all by bus, um, which, when I'm not being driven around by Amy, um, is also my favourite mode of transport. And so a golden treasury with a couple of services tucked in was a great help, Tom. So uh, we remember him, a much beloved member and minister here, as we um, reflect on the body of Christ and read from the fourth chapter of Ephesians. One Lord, one faith, one God and Father. As a prisoner then on behalf of the Lord, I beseech you to let your life be worthy of the call that you received, with all modesty and gentleness, patiently showing forbearance to one another in love, diligently endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, one hope set before you in your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who rules over all, and works through all, and dwells in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to his measure of the gift of Christ. And he appointed some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the full equipment of his people, for the work of their appointed service, in the upbuilding of the body of Christ, till we all attain unity in faith and in knowledge of the Son of God, and reach a full-grown manhood, the measure of the stature of the perfection of Christ. Then shall we no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about by every changing wind of doctrine, by the cleverness of men in their craft and cunning and in the wiles of error, but maintaining the truth in love, we shall grow into complete union with Christ, who is our head, and from whom, as the whole body is closely framed together and united by every joint with which it is supplied, the effective working in due measure of every part makes for the growth of the body, building it up in love. This I say then, and charge you in the name of the Lord, that you should no longer live as other Gentiles live, in the vanity of their mind and the darkness of their understanding, alienated from the life of God by their ignorance, which comes from their blindness of heart, who have recklessly abandoned themselves to their lusts, making a business of vice without restraint. But you did not so learn Christ, if indeed you listened to his word and were instructed in him, 
even as truth is in Jesus, but rather concerning your former way of life, to cast off your old self, corrupt with deceitful passions, and to be renewed in the whole spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which has been created in the image of God, in the uprightness and holiness of his truth. Put away falsehood then, and let everyone speak the truth with his neighbour, for we are members one of another. Let your anger be without sin, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, and give no footing to the devil. Let the thief steal no more, let him rather labour with his hands at honest work, so that he may have something to share with one in need. Let no corrupt language pass your lips, but only such as is helpful to the occasion and will prove a blessing to those who hear. Here ends the reading, and may God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Regarded by many as the most sublime of all the Apostle Paul's writings, the subject of this brief letter is God's eternal purpose in establishing and completing the universal church of Jesus Christ. There are two main themes of Ephesians. Firstly, that Christ has reconciled all creation to himself and to God. And secondly, that Christ has united people from all nations to himself and to one another in his church. These are as their duties. We read earlier how Paul uses the imagery of the body of Christ, maintaining the truth in love, we shall grow into complete union with Christ who is our head, and from whom, as the whole body is closely framed together and united by every joint with which it is supplied, the effective working in due measure of every part makes for the growth of the body, building up in love. This speaks to the importance of being part of a visible church community. While our salvation is from God alone, look around you. It is through these people that God is building you up. Using the imagery of the temple of God, the Apostle writes in the second chapter that built upon the foundation of the Apostles and Prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple built in the Lord, in whom you also are built into it for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Perhaps no picture calls us to reflection more than the image of being a temple of God ourselves. May it inspire all of us to examine closely how we are living our lives. Not that we may be consumed by guilt or lost in a vain attempt to save ourselves, but that we might be encouraged to grow in holiness by cooperating with the grace of God that we need and that is freely offered to everyone who asks. Using the imagery of the Bride of Christ, Paul uses the example of marriage in that truly beautiful but all too often misunderstood passage from chapter 5, that wives ought to be to their husbands what the church ought to be to Christ, while husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loves the church, indeed loving their lives as they love their own bodies. Because as Paul writes, no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. And for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is a profound one. And I am saying it refers to Christ 
and the church. Marriage, therefore, can be thought of as an icon of God's love for humanity. This picture is also a reminder for us that while a hunger for social justice is part and parcel of the Christian life, charity begins at home. Indeed, this principle is true whether you're married or not. Don't let yourself be paralyzed by global problems, but love the people God has put in your life. Family, <coughs> friends, work colleagues, people you go to church with, whatever. We can make discerning the will of God into a very difficult thing, and sometimes it is, but other times it's dead simple. Love the people that God has already put into your life. They are your calling. Paul wrote this letter while he was a prisoner, probably about the same time as his letter to the Colossians, and Ephesians shares with that letter many of the same phrases and expressions. Its context may be divided into two sections, the first majoring on matters of doctrine, and the second being more practical in nature. That he mentions being in prison means we can date this letter to approximately 62 AD. Those who would date Ephesians later than this uh, would do so more from their doubts about Paul's authorship than they would from strong evidence against an early date. That Paul was the author of this letter was universally accepted until modern times. Today, a number of scholars believe that it was written in Paul's name by an unknown follower or imitator of Paul. The two main reasons they would give for this uh, would be that the letter's style and thought does not strike everyone as being typical of Paul's style, and that the author of Ephesians doesn't seem to be familiar with the letter's recipients. Seems odd, given Paul's extended stay in Ephesus. In Acts 19, we read that he was there for two years. However, there are sound reasons to believe that Paul did indeed write Ephesians. For a start, the letter explicitly claims to be Paul which ought to weigh heavily in the debate unless there is overwhelming evidence falsifying the claim. Indeed, the early church, which rejected other spurious letters, universally accepted this letter to Ephesus being written by Paul. And this was a city with a reputation for discernment regarding false apostolic claims. Consider this from the second chapter of Revelation. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, I know your works, your toil, and how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, but are not, and find them to be false. More than this, letters in antiquity were usually transmitted through a person known to the author and the recipient or recipients who would have guaranteed the original copy as being genuine and then elaborated on its details. Tychicus fulfills this rule for us in Ephesians. Secondly, Analyses of an author's style are often more subjectively based on incomplete evidence, and indeed, with the assistance of more sophisticated computer analysis, further studies have shown that Ephesians has more similarities to Paul's accepted style than we earlier recognized. More than this, recent research suggests that the role of secretaries in the composition of ancient matters should be given greater consideration than it has been given in the past. It is true that Ephesians does, in fact, demonstrate close similarity with Paul's forms of expression and thought. Critics have used this evidence to ascribe authorship to someone that Paul had influence. And yet the simplest explanation would surely seem to be that the letter looks like it was written by Paul because it was written by Paul. The question of Paul's apparent unfamiliarity with his readers can be easily enough explained 
ancient archaeological evidence shows that Ephesus controlled a large network of outlying villages and rural areas up to 30 miles from the city. Also, we find in Acts 19 reports of Paul's preaching radiating out to, quote, all the residents of Asia, unquote. As such, Paul would not have been personally acquainted with newer pockets of believers in the Ephesian villages and rural farms that would have sprung up in the years since his stay in the city. Another explanation is that because important early manuscripts make no reference to Ephesus at the start of the letter, and because the letter contains no local allusions or personal greetings, it might be regarded as an encyclical or circular letter of which copies were distributed by Tychicus to several churches in Asia Minor. It is possible that when all Paul's correspondence was collected into a corpus, a copy of this letter was secured from Ephesus, the capital of the Roman province of Asia, hence why the present title was given. Incidentally, Ephesus was an important port city on the west coast of Asia and boasted the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. While there was no specific occasion or problem that prompted Paul to write this letter, perhaps it was because of the city's fascination with magic and the occult, seen most profoundly in the grand processions from the theatre to the temple in honour of the goddess Artemis, that moved Paul to remind the Ephesians of the power of God and Christ's important triumphant ascension as head over the church and over all things. In any case, it would be very odd in the extreme that a letter which passionately exhorts readers to speak the truth and to put away falsehood would be in itself a forgery. For me personally, this is the best argument as to why we can be fairly confident that this letter was indeed written by Paul. Reading some of these arguments against Pauline authorship of the Pauline epistles, while meditating on this verse from our reading, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, made me reflect on a way of reading the Bible called historical criticism or higher criticism, the dominant scholarly method from about the 19th century, and also on our relationship as non-subscribing Presbyterians to the Church Catholic, that is, small c Catholic, meaning Church Universal. While this approach to the Bible is an important development not only in our tradition, but throughout liberal Protestantism and Christianity more generally, it is important to be wary of its limitations, despite the usefulness it may have. All methods of interpretation have limitations. Higher criticism at its best seeks to recover what a particular text meant in its historical context, which is undoubtedly important. But proponents can have a tendency to be overly sceptical and quick to dismiss traditional understandings of the text, such as prophecy pointing to Christ in the Old Testament, or denial or stronger than needed for doubt of certain parts of the New Testament. While it is true that most scholars, even those coming from a relatively conservative position, concede that not all of the letters ascribed to Paul were necessarily written by him, and while personally I don't see that to be a great disaster if it is indeed true, because it wouldn't deny the divine spirit behind the words, we nevertheless ought to be cautious about the intentions behind some of these claims. Because often classical readings of scripture are dismissed not from evidence, but from a particular philosophical prejudice. We non-subscribers have a great tradition of free thought and boldly pursuing truth, no matter where it goes. The Bible, interpreted under the Lordship of Christ, is our rule of faith. And as such, we have confidence that the scriptures can stand the scrutiny of free inquiry. 
and that such an inquiry, pursued in good faith and due reverence, is a sure way in which we may truly encounter God. Many non-subscribers in the past, and many still today, have been made to feel like second-class Christians by our brothers and sisters from other denominations, with whom we make up the body of Christ, because of how far we went with the principles of the Reformation, and how readily we accepted the values of the Enlightenment. But let not the sun go down on our wrath, and let us not be children tossed them to and fro, and carried about by every changing wind of doctrine, by the cleverness of men in their craft, and cunning in the wiles of error, as we read today. In other words, let not the hurt caused by other Christians cause us to use our God-given and hard-fought-for freedom to be overly critical of Orthodox, Conservative, or Classical Christianity, and overly accepting of alternative worldviews often hostile to our faith, and often representative of just another kind of irrational, dogmatic fundamentalism. Let us never fear free inquiry, and indeed let us continue to be open to finding truth in all places. Indeed, let us continue to add a hearty Amen to a resolution passed by the Synod of Munster, Presbytery of Antrim, and Remonstrant Synod of Ulster, way back on the 20th of July, 1835. Quote, We are perfectly unanimous in acknowledging allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ as the only King and Head of the Church, and in the maintenance of the great principles of the Reformation, namely the sufficiency of the Scriptures, the right of private judgment, and the rejection of human authority in matters of faith. But having put down the crutches that are creeds and confessions, let us remember that our steps must now necessarily be more tentative than those of our subscribing brothers and sisters. And if we are to search the Bible for ourselves and form our own opinions with regard to what they teach, then let us remember that we are even more dependent on prayer than our subscribing brothers and sisters. And that when exercising that inalienable right of every Christian to search the records of divine truth for their own instruction and guidance, let us remember to do so, as it were, on our knees, that is, with a posture of prayer. Yes, indeed, there should be no Christian working out their own salvation with more fear and trembling than a non-subscribing Presbyterian Christian. And yet, we are not alone. An insight that our subscribing brothers and sisters tend to do a better job of presenting is that the Bible is not only a record of divine truth to be read on your own and understood on your own, but that it is also read by, in and with the Church, gathered locally and scattered globally and spread throughout time, and understood in community, and a diverse community of including apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, you and me, in the upbuilding of the body of Christ, till we all attain unity in faith and in knowledge of the Son of God, maintaining the truth in love and being built up in love, growing into complete union with Christ, who is our head. Our reading today from Ephesians chapter 4 might be thought of as beginning the second section of the letter, that is, the ethical implications of the doctrinal teaching set out in the first three chapters which using the imagery of the Church as the body of Christ, the temple of God, and the bride of Christ, makes the bold claim that those who make up the Church, who are counted among its members by faith, are called by God the Father, redeemed and forgiven through His Son, and incorporated into a fellowship that is sealed and directed in the 
divine indwelling spirit. The ethical implications of this doctrinal teaching might be summed up in one word, unity. How encouraging it is for us that the mystery of the absolute oneness of God is communicated to us as a unity of the plural, as the Jesuit scholar Paul Rahner put it. Reflecting on this phrase, the unity of the plural, as we reflect on God and the body of Christ, how much more vividly might we see God as that in which we live and move and have our being? And how much more keenly might we sense the presence of God in ourselves and in individuals and in the other as we meet for worship? And how much more clearly might we see that God is neither a despot nor a distant deity, but love itself, truly active and truly present, the source and force of true unity and freedom? And how reassuring for us particularly as non-subscribing Presbyterian Christians putting such heavy stress as we do on the rights of the individual, which we find to be the logical outworking of the faith revealed to us in Scripture, that in Christ we know that God is our Father, and that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, and that the Church does not require a slavish uniformity, for this would be a false unity, but instead affirms that diversity is not destroyed in the body of Christ, but is sanctified, and may be a tool in our growing in spiritual maturity in Christ's perfection, our source of unity being in Him, the real bond of union among Christians. Here again, this section from the beginning of this morning's reading, this time using the RSV. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all lowliness and meekness, with patience, forbearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. We can sum up Ephesians chapter 4 in these four points. Firstly, the Church is one endeavouring to keep the unity of faith in the bond of peace. There is one church, one God, one faith, one baptism. Secondly, the church is people, men and women who, energised by the Holy Spirit, for to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We are not all given the same gifts, but together we are equipped to do God's will. Thirdly, the head of the church is Christ from which the whole body is joined and knit together. And finally, the church is the new man, the new human, the new creation, made to be righteous and holy. We are no longer alienated from God, and we are being renewed together, members of one another. The church, then, is that place established by Christ where we each may become what we are created to be, maturing and being perfected, while the church receives what it needs to be from each of us. And so it too is being perfected. The church as the body of Christ carries us beyond our petty and worldly personal concerns, stretching our vision to the eternal and the heavenly as we ascend together to worship God. Ephesians articulates general instruction in the truths of the cosmic redemptive work of God in Christ. The unity of the church among diverse peoples, and proper conduct in the church, the home, and the world. 
Unity and love in the bond of peace mark the work of the Saviour, as well as Christians' grateful response to his free grace in their lives. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. Amen. Set us free, O Lord, from all restlessness and anxiety. Give us that peace and power which flew from thee. Keep us in all perplexity and distress, that upheld by thy strength and stayed on the rock of thy faithfulness, we may abide in thee now and evermore. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen.